I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. Turning the mic on yourself is not easy. It's tough to be sure that anyone will actually care enough to listen to your own personal story, and burying your heart and soul for just anyone to hear is a little bit terrifying. In this session, reporter Sally Herships guides us through the process of creating her meditation on loss called As Many Leaves. And she also explains how to keep your journalistic integrity while opening yourself up to the world. Sally was joined by Alan Hall of Following Tree Productions, who commissioned this piece. And together, they shared their approaches to crafting the narrative and the challenges they faced in making a personal tale resonate more broadly. From the 2017 Third Coast Conference, here is The Confessional. When is a personal story worth sharing? Is anyone here wondering if they should tell a personal story? Have you ever wondered? Okay, yeah. Or do you wonder if you might wonder? Maybe you're wondering about wondering if you might wonder. Um, So we're going to talk about what makes a personal story worth telling. And we're doing this because it seems really timely, right? There are all these podcasts popping up. And we're very open to having a discussion about it afterwards. So we would encourage you to ask questions and share thoughts when we're done. But first, uh, Sally and I are going to share an experience we had um, making a program. We're going to kind of perform an autopsy or an anatomy on uh, a program that we worked on together, a program. I'm going to speak English, sorry. A documentary. Um, And it's the story... uh, We're going to tell you the story of how Sally and I came to make and how the uh, British Broadcasting Corporation came to broadcast a highly personal meditation on loss. The program, or the documentary, is called As Many Leaves. It was broadcast on BBC... Uh, Radio 4 in a general feature slot, and it, was, it is half an hour long. Uh, but along the way uh, in the next hour, we're also going to reflect on bigger questions of when to tell a personal story, and I guess we'll also touch on when not to tell a personal story, and a few thoughts about how you might tell a personal story. And then beyond that even, um, we're going to perhaps... T- tap into a kind of higher ambition as to what it is that we do. What is the purpose of story building, storytelling? In case you haven't heard, how many, has anyone here heard as many leaves? Okay, that's cool. Wow. All right. All right. So in case you haven't heard as many leaves, uh, 
something bad happened to me a few years ago, and this is the story of that bad thing. So I'm just getting home from seeing my friend, and I was just thinking as I walked in the door, it's just incredibly sad to come home late at night alone. I used to walk in and Adnan would be here waiting for me and it's just so sad. It's just heartbreaking. And I know he is never going to be here again waiting for me because I changed the locks. So... So what happened was Adnan is my ex-husband and he left. He left me very unexpectedly and told me via email uh, with, with no explanation. And I never saw him again, almost. Um, and so that you don't get distracted, no, I really, really didn't know ahead of time. So uh, that's pretty grim, obviously. But in a way, it's kind of too, ba- too bad for Sally. Um, bad things happen all the time. Uh, as a, a professional documentarian, program maker, producer, uh, we have to consider, you know, we have to evaluate what makes or doesn't make a, a, a story worth telling, and that applies uh, perhaps more than ever to um, personal stories. Because for most of us, frankly, uh, the troubles we encounter don't amount to a, to a hill of beans. Um, and if a story is only likely to be of interest to our partners or our grands, then maybe we should think twice about uh, making it, and we, we just need to be able to answer that question, you know, should I tell a, s- a personal story? And quite possibly the answer is going to be, nah. So if you're, if you're taking notes, this is going to be, this is a great time to start. Um, I'm a teacher, you guys, I can't, I can't help it. Um, so challenge number one, imagine that you are in a bar with friends, or if you're me, maybe on the couch with a nice cup of tea uh, with your friends, and ask yourself honestly, is my story worth sharing? Um, what's in it for the listener? So my background is in the visual arts, so the way I always think of this distinction is the difference between a fine artist and a graphic designer. If you're a fine artist, you're painting for yourself. You only have yourself to please. If you're a graphic designer, you are creating work for somebody else. You are a paid hack. Uh, to my mind, it's um, the idea that an artist uh, will kind of expect the spectator or the, uh, the listener to step towards their work. Whereas uh, for those of us working in public radio um, or perhaps even in podcasting, you have to lay out a kind of welcome carpet to the listener because we're not here to serve our own needs primarily. We're not here to indulge our own ideas or feelings. Uh, We have to bear in mind, not be dictated to by, but to bear in mind the needs of the listener. So when I was first thinking about the idea or the possibility of making a story, um, I talked to a really good friend, a super talented radio producer, um, someone I trust more than almost anyone else, and she said, that's a horrible idea. Lots of people get divorced. Why should you make a story about it? And that was, that was really great advice. And I have to say it was kind of my, my response as well. It's my instinct. Uh, when asked by anyone about making personal stories. And part of that is obviously my British reserve. You know, we don't sort of uh, necessarily lay out our, um, our, ourselves in that way. But also, you know, professionally, 
you have to think about the narrative. What is the narrative? What, what is the dramaturgy? That's what we say in Europe. Because um, we're telling true stories, but with the tools of fiction here. And we're turning real people's lives into kind of radio novellas. Um, and we have to think about those people. Challenge two, is this story even a story? Does it have legs? Um, and just like any other documentary subject, just like uh, any news story you might be pursuing, you need to evaluate, does it have legs? Or am I attached to it simply because it's mine, because it belongs to me? You have to ask, why really should anyone else care? And why should it fill the airwaves? In this instance, why should it find a place in the schedule of the British, the mighty British Broadcasting Corporation? And this is what I asked myself when Sally first mentioned the idea. But here's how the story first turned into a story. So Alan and I were sitting in Madison Square Park. I had lent my voice to a production on graffiti, my New York City voice. And we were, I know, I'm super, I'm just super tough and urban like that. And so we were sitting on a bench and catching up. And Sally says to me, uh, she's been keeping an audio diary. Uh, She's been recording it since her husband walked out on her. And she has on tape, she's got reels and reels of tears and tears. And she doesn't know what to do with them. And she wonders whether Falling Tree might be interested to make one of its kind of Falling Trees-y sort of um, featurey, documentary type sort of stories. Um, And this was the kind of material that she was suggesting. New reality, Sunday night, donuts. Donuts and I'll probably become the size of the shelf at the store that holds the donuts, or maybe the refrigerator. I think this is natural. I think this is one of the stages of heartbreak. I think there's the ice cream stage, the comfort food stage, and the donut stage, but maybe. Maybe they all fall under comfort food. I don't know. I skipped the ice cream stage because I am lactose intolerant, so I can't really have ice cream. So I'm just making up for that with donuts. I guess I'm just feeling sorry for myself, which I guess is normal. I'm probably going to listen to this at the end of the year, and it's just going to be nothing but tears, 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 and donuts. I have to stop eating so many donuts. Um, when I recorded this tape, I had no thought of doing anything with it. This was, this was a diary. Um, I, I really I had no plan to share this with anyone, not to be in a room here with you. Um, but I felt a really strong urge to share my story, maybe the same urge that some of you have had, right? Something huge in my life had happened. I wanted to commune with others, to process it. Um, and so the first thing I did after Ann Hepperman thankfully stopped me from eating the donuts. We had a donut intervention. Thank you, Ann. Um, I tried out a short, non-narrated montage version. I wanted to see what it was like to play this tape in a room with other people. So I played it at a live storytelling night in New York City. And I wanted to know if it would be okay or weird. Um, and it was, it was weird, but it was also okay. And, and then when it came to the uh, idea of pitching it to, to the BBC, uh, Sally had to convince me, first of all. And my me- immediate reaction 
was uh, that it felt too close in time to the events, that the, the material was too raw. Um, so I had a kind of concern for Sally, a kind of concern for Sally, as well as seeing the potential, possibly. I also felt it was, um, it was too American for a British audience. You know, it's not terribly British to do this kind of thing. Um, as I say, we've got these stiff upper lips. Um, and we don't do personal in um, what I think of as that sort of overly generous way that Americans might have. But within, within all that, <clears throat> within, within the heartbreak within the self-pity, within the self-regarding <laughs> and the navel-gazing. I'll stop. Um, I, could sense, I could sense there was potential, there was potential for a story, a story that faced outwards, a story that wasn't um, just kind of about Sally. And there was a trigger to this, and this, um, this was the donuts. Or at least it was the specificity of the donuts. I'm thinking back to Brian Reed, was it yesterday, who talked about this? And also maybe Jad and his kind of little, little shit. Somebody said, the way an English person says little shit sounds derogatory. When Americans can say it, but a British person can't. Anyway, um, so uh, th- there was something in, that, in the specifics of that detail that potentially made it universal, made it more than a story just about, uh, just about Sally. So I recognized that there was this, this raw, human, close, personal story with amazing intimate, intimate access. Challenge number three, do you have specificity, uh, uniqueness of detail and proximity? When I was keeping my diary, I brought my recorder with me everywhere. I needed it. It was my crutch. It was my tool to process the horrible moments I was going through. So I, it was with me when I was capturing all these mundane details, when I cleaned out the clothes when, that Adnan left in the closet, when I cleaned out the kitchen cabinets and threw away the cans of tuna fish and the bottles of spices that he left. I had my recorder with me. Uh, like we say in the story, it's not always the moments of high drama, um, it's these, these little bits of everyday life, the, the mundane details and that are the hardest. And I needed my recorder to help me get through. Yeah, so I felt we were in business, really. Um, and we could make, we could conceive of a close meditation on something universal enough that would chime even with um, a slightly skeptical British listenership. And so the next step was uh, to do what we always do in feature making, which was to try and ensure that there was a space within this story for the listener. Is it participatory? No, how do I say it? Participatory. Participatory, yeah. Participatory. Is there a space, is there a space in this story for, for the listener? So Alan very, very meekly, as is his way, suggested... Um, that one way to help with that would be to introduce characters who could participate in the story in the same way a listener might. Um, and so challenge number four on your lists is ask yourself, is there a place for the listener? Uh, because this is going to turn potentially, if you've got that, um, if you've got that participatory story, um, uh, place. Hard, I can't do it. Uh, you can potentially uh, turn what might otherwise be a me cast into an us cast. Um, it's 9.30. So I'm out with my friend Stacy. Hi. Hi. It's Stacy. 
And we were, <laughs> we were just talking about dating and that it doesn't have to be horrible and scary. No, no. It can be really great and fun and exciting and romantic and great. So I think I'm going to try, or at least I'm going to try to make an online dating profile. Yes, yes. Go forth. Do it. Yes. Um, what Stacy said was not true. Just FYI, dating really sucked. Uh, but some clips worked, and then there were other clips that needed to be added, like that, and then there were clips that needed to be cut, that Alan needed to cut. Yeah, and um, this is where uh, my role, and, and before me, my colleague Eleanor, who also helped work on this uh, in the meantime, um, had to be kind of merciless editor, suggesting uh, not just what, what might be in, brought into the program, but what might have to sort of fall by the wayside. So if a clip or a scene resonated, I, I, I felt, only within Sally's world, then I found it ex- excluding. It wasn't inclusive. It didn't provide that space for the listener. And I needed it, to, whatever the clip was, to resonate in my world as well. Because um, I, in a sense, was um, a representative of the audience, and, um, and if I found myself struggling to understand what was going on or to what the joke was about or who a character was or what the nuance of what they were saying was, then I'd, I'd suggest we cut it, as I suggested we cut this. I'm making, um, I'm making an audio diary. Happy New Year. Happy New Weird. Happy New Fears. Happy New Steers, Beers. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? I don't do resolutions, but I do have a lot of projects that will be completed this year. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. That was, that was a great clip, Alan. <laughs> that was a clip of me and my friend Selden. We were at a New Year's Eve party, and it's a perfect example of the kind of tape that made sense to me because I was there. It was a friend of mine. Um, I'm in my own life, and um, I knew what was happening, um, but it didn't work so well for maybe almost anyone else. So, um, challenge number five, uh, is you need to do the, the me or the us test, the me cast or the us cast test. Because um, <clears throat> if this had been a me cast, uh, a story Sally was telling for herself, really, it would have been, it would have been fine. But I, I was listening uh, with the ears of an audience that wasn't there and that, was only, that only has the clues that we present within the program, within the documentary um, to work on, really. The other thing is that the clip that we just played of Stacy, I had almost nine hours of tape. Um, and most of the tape was just me, uh, which isn't that interesting. And what makes it even more kind of boring and pitiful was most of it was just me crying, like when my mom came to stay with me after Adnan left and she brought Daisy the dog and then they left and I was really sad, so I turned on my recorder and cried more. Um, and figuring out what was boring or not boring was not a job I could do myself, right? I did not have that ability. We can't step outside ourselves. Um, luckily, I had Alan to provide perspective, an editor. And uh, to make this a documentary, really, that reached out to listeners, we came up with uh, a couple of ideas um, of weaving in different textures and different voices. In particular, we brought in two kind of one wholly new character but two new characters in supporting roles 
And we'll get to the second shortly, but the first of these characters involved me asking, as my, in my role as editor, if you like, of um, uh, Sally to consider something really quite painful. My ex-husband, Adnan, uh, in a piece of raw tape, uh, he was teaching me Urdu, and the first draft I turned into Alan didn't include any tape of Adnan because he was gone, he'd left, (laughs) and then Alan told me to go back and put that bit in. So challenge number six, does this story work as a solo effort, a single voice narrative, or does it need additional characters? I mean, clearly here, uh, it felt important to convey something of the context for this story, which meant conveying something of the life that Sally and Adnan had before it fell apart. So for us, for the loss to be understood, really, uh, and to be felt by listeners, to give them that reason to care, we had to know what it was that was being lost. So my role was to consider Sally and her story within the context of making any documentary feature and broadcast documentary. Alan, you said broadcast. I am so happy that you said broadcast. Um, The thing here is that when things are broadcast, listeners believe them just automatically. It's almost frightening um, how much trust people have in what they hear and see. And I have my own point of view as a human being, but as a human, as a storyteller, as a journalist, I also have a responsibility. And that is to tell a balanced and fair story, even if it is about someone who I, as a human, perceive as having done something that was maybe not terribly nice. And there's maybe a distinction here between uh, the old world of um, broadcast and then the possibilities that are offered by the podcast sphere. Uh, The podcast sphere, in a sense, is less mediated. To a large degree, it's unregulated. And it potentially leaves room for a kind of um, journalistic carelessness, might I suggest, uh, which could be damaging intellectually, emotionally. So we're telling true stories with those tools of fiction, but there are real people who potentially are going to be cultural damage. We have to consider them. Yeah, as Alan would say, I was quite keen. I was, very, I was very keen that Adnan be notified. As a journalist, as a storyteller, as a human being, I would not have gone forward with the story unless we notified him first. Yeah, because as far as I knew, let's face it, Sally might have been absolutely bonkers. She might have been making this whole thing up. Um, and so we, uh, Falling Tree, emailed Adnan, and we notified him of what our intentions were. Uh, and we felt he had to be given uh, the chance to respond. 
we needed to check the veracity of the story in one instance. We also needed to give him a chance to respond to that, to speak for himself, potentially even to have a role in the documentary. Yeah, so I would like to make a gentle plea to all of you here, to the audience, that we all be this careful and this responsible. Um, Adnan didn't answer, and he's not really in the story, uh, because ultimately this was my story, and it was a story of loss. It was not a story about the specifics of a relationship. If we'd included all those tiny little he said, then she said, then he said, then she sent a text, then he said, you know, um, it would have been a totally different piece. Yeah, there was, there was no judgment expressed at all by Sally about her um, former partner. But we needed to open out this story. We needed, it, we needed to open it out from the axis of, 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 the, of, the, of the relationship, the marriage, um, and to give a broader context and to open it out for listeners to offer points of access, to offer points that, things, moments that they could recognize, um, and to build a story that was bigger than that immediate experience. So the experience is a conduit for something else, which is a, something universal about loss. And this brings us to the second character, someone who was um, a witness to what had happened, uh, but also someone who could offer a sense of perspective. My Aunt Lucy. This is chicken and mushrooms and carrots and capers. Mm. Oh my God. Thank you. It's it's good at the spot. Yeah. Growing up, I used to watch my Aunt Lucy make movies. She's a documentary maker, so telling personal stories in front of millions of viewers just seems like a natural thing to do. Do you also find comfort in this process? Well, I don't know that I'd call it comfort. What I find in picking up a camera and facing extreme situations is structure, purpose, meaning. And those things are comforting. So, yeah, I guess the answer to your question is yes. Somehow, all that feels so overwhelming when I'm um, just facing life without my equipment suddenly becomes beautiful, meaningful, and part of a process. Like making this project means that I'm in a process of discovery, and therefore there's something I'm learning here and something I can share with other people as opposed to just experiencing the raw pain of it all. Um, thank God for Aunt Lucy. She says all the things that I, she, and she's, yeah, she says all the things I just cannot find the words for. And she's just another example of why you cannot be your own editor. Uh, you don't, we, we just simply do not have the perspective. So Aunt Lucy says, uh, structure, purpose, and meaning. She opens out this story to that sort of bigger aspect that I alluded to at the top, the nature and the purpose of storytelling. Aunt Lucy is sort of like one of us. She's like one of us listeners who's sort of found her way onto the set of this story. She's our surrogate and she mirrors back and reflects back to Sally the misfortune that she's uh, uh, suffering. And she was recorded specially at um, our request and that was one of the small contributions that uh, we made to, to this production. Um, because Sally was still in the midst of her loss. 
I mean, I could see that from the Skype and email communications that we had. So my role as editor was to help us see things um, as they really were rather than how she felt they might be. And getting her to talk to her uh, aunt was almost like a therapeutic tool. It sort of, um, we crossed over, documentary maker crossed over into the story. That's true. And that's um, another kind of vital tool, I think, in helping someone tell a personal story. You need that sounding board. So challenge number seven, do you have or do you need a person, a character who can reflect back to you how things actually are rather than how you would like to see them or hear them? And that's a general observation, I think, maybe to be made also about uh, another difference between um, perhaps the professional broadcast world and the amateur Mecast world, that possibility of uh, an editorial hierarchy or an editorial coaching, not even if it's peer coaching. And by the time we made this story, a couple of years had passed since Adnan had left, but even so, I could not and did not have the perspective I normally have as a reporter. And remember, I'm still living this. It's, it's my life. Whereas for me, it was all just material for a radio documentary, you know? <laughs> Uh, I do have distance. I can suggest that we stick things in or cut things out, um, that we, you know, use a bit of the ex-husband, that we find the aunt. And, uh, you know, I could encourage the use of music. It didn't take much encouragement. We fortunately had a budget and we could uh, involve a composer. I have an almost embarrassing crush on a composer by the name of Nina Perry. I just, I, ugh, I love her music so much. And she and a cellist by the name of Danny Keene uh, composed the music for this. And so music was another tool in this production. Um, what the music did, so many things, um, it provided a, a way for me to communicate when I couldn't find the words um, to say things. Like, I, when this first happened, I had this incredibly deeply sick, wrong feeling. And it's one thing for me to tell you that. It's another thing for the music to communicate it. So when the piece opens, it opens with a piece of tape from my uh, wedding, Indian wedding. And then you, if we, we're going to play this and you're going to hear the music come in and hear how things suddenly or, or, or turn bad and wrong in this sick, deep way. We got inside, and a garland of roses and white carnations was put around my neck. I looked out into the audience. I saw Adnan's family and all the women, his cousins and aunts, in their saris. They were so beautiful. They looked like butterflies. I still think that song is so pretty. Hey, sorry, Mr. Call. Um, call me back. I'm on my cell phone. Bye. Music was also a production tool. I would write something. Uh, the composers, Nina and Danny, would compose. I would hear the music. I would realize I'd done everything just wrong and badly. Um, I would rewrite, send it back to them, and move forward. And because I was responsible for providing direction for the composers, it forced me to, to crystallize what I wanted and needed to communicate. 
Yeah, and obviously music could uh, lend an emotional tone to, uh, to the documentary as it can for any documentary. I mean, we, we know it can be a great asset, um, a character, so it sort of sets the scene, it sort of lights the scene, if you like, it offers moonlight, uh, mood lighting. Um, and I'm sure we're also aware of the dangers, the potential dangers of adding uh, music to a documentary. piece of music we did not use um, and I can't, it still gets to me I can't, it's too, it's, I love the composers so much but we didn't agree about this one theme they were super attached to it and I found it too saccharine and too syrupy and it's possible that we exchange words via Skype <laughs> I found myself, yeah, disagreeing with the cellist uh, yeah. but we, we've worked with Nina, Nina Perry uh, a lot at Falling Tree Productions and we knew what she could do we knew what she was capable of, and uh, we also know that music in a documentary can elevate the most banal thing into something much more poetic, um, that it, it can turn a, a walk into a dance, it can turn a trip to Ikea into a ballet. Or it can represent chaos and confusion and lack of control. We just went to Ikea and I got a shelf and I did it without my six-foot-tall husband, soon-to-be ex-husband, with my sister, right? Yeah. Proving that... What does that prove? That we got the shelf. We can get the shelf. Turn right out to Bay Street. Okay. Well, I'm just impressed because I have to say... Continue on Bay Street for a half mile. When the movers came and took away all my furniture, which is an exaggeration, but they took away a lot of the bookcases, I was very frustrated because... Left. I don't know what she's at. Well, weird. she'll reroute us if we're wrong. We just, we just got this, and how much do you think this thing weighs? A lot. <laughs> In 400 feet, turn right onto Lorraine Street. Turn right onto Lorraine Street. No, but I'm very impressed that we got this... Big Continue on Bay Street for a half mile. Turn right yeah, oh yeah, so it weighs about the size of a fifth grader, but it's more difficult to lift because it's dead weight. So now we're going to try to get this dead fifth grader... Well, that's a horrible thing. Now we're going to try to get this box into my apartment. Oh, you have to open the trunk. Okay. Wish us luck, universe. Because this is a big, heavy box. That is probably the most highly produced uh, bit of the documentary, and it's one of my favorites. And it's uh, an awfully long way from the, the reels and reels of tears and tears on the raw, raw material from which we started. There was, yeah, there was a lot of material which didn't get played. It's one thing to let people hear me as I eat too many donuts um, because I was sad. My husband had suddenly walked out on me, and that felt very reasonable. But there were other pieces of tape, and some of them represented pretty dark and vulnerable and private moments. Um, 
and some of them still make me uncomfortable now. And there was one in particular that I am okay with now, but at the time, I was pretty worried about including it, and initially, I wanted to hold it back. So I'm getting ready to go to Adnan's office. And I'm so nervous, I'm practically shaking. That could also be because I just had a lot of donuts today, but it's really scary. I'm in an elevator. I'm going up. I feel like, um, I feel like my heart is like about to pop out of my chest and recording these little memos is actually keeping me from totally losing it and going bananas. Sixth floor, seventh floor, he's on the ninth floor. Oh God, this sucks. So, this was a piece of tape, what you just heard. I, Adnan has disappeared. He's cut off all contact. I don't know why he's left. I haven't heard from him in weeks. He's left almost all of his possessions behind in our apartment. Um, and I wanted an answer. Um, I tried to send him some emails. I hadn't heard back. And I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> so I decided to go to his office and I was really worried. I didn't want people to think that I was a stalker or crazy or nuts. So for the, for the sake of the story, of course, Sally appearing to be a bit nuts was great. It's great. Because uh, it offers a sort of dramatic tension. Um, but what's good for the story is not necessarily good for the uh, protagonist. Alan, I was not nuts. No, she wasn't nuts. But um, she was seeking, in a way, a form or a scaffold uh, for her story. In a way, she was trying to make something tangible from the intangible stuff of experience. And as producers, that's what we do. You know, we try to find form. We try to find the form within the lump, the mass of stuff, the soup. Just as Aunt Lucy says, structure, purpose, beauty, and meaning. Um, but the magic of storytelling, which there's uh, another term that Aunt Lucy used, I mean, also, uh, I mean, it doesn't necessarily come easily. And uh, we were very clear that we had a very strong start to this story, pretty dramatic opening, and we had a certain amount of tension, and we had a lot of intimacy, but we didn't necessarily know where we were heading. You know, what was our destination? Um, this is real life, and I don't know if any of you have ever noticed, but real life can sometimes be a little messy and unexpected. And you are the author of your own life, right? Isn't that inconvenient? Wouldn't it be great to have like a team of writers? Sometimes I wish we had, I had one. Um, and so when we got to the ending, I got really, really stuck. And we're going to hear challenge number eight from Aunt Lucy in just a moment. Um, yeah, challenge eight is... Well, she's about... I think she's about to tell oh, us. Oh, should we, should we yeah, wait? Yeah, I think we should okay, wait. Yeah, yeah. Some, well, this is narrative tension, you guys. Um, so <laughs> we tried having me record some endings. That totally flopped because originally uh, my 
I'd been keeping a diary. And just to give you a sense of, of what it was like to make this switch, if you shut your eyes for a minute and imagine, I don't know, maybe you're in your high school bedroom or you're at home and you're sitting down to write a diary entry, right? Not so hard. Okay. All right. We're all there. Now imagine the diary entry you're writing is going to be broadcast for the entire United Kingdom. How are you feeling? Are you feeling like you want to be super honest? <laughs> Maybe not so much. Um, and I, so it was really hard. I could not sit down with my, my recorder and record these natural uh, spontaneous diary entries. That did not work. And I hadn't found a resolution. I didn't have one to write about. And eventually I realized that was the ending. Um, that this kind of deep, to-the-bone, bruising experience stays with you. Um, in this next clip, we hear a little bit um, of Aunt Lucy in which she encapsulates Challenge 8. What's wrong with sounding sad? What's wrong with appearing weak? What's wrong with appearing vulnerable? He did a horrible thing. And it's kind of like... Do you want to tell a true and powerful story to the best of your ability, or do you want to look good? So now I'm going to serve apple, almonds, and cashews. Looks good. Yes. So challenge eight. Am I trying to tell a true and powerful story, or am I trying to look good? Thank you, Aunt Lucy. So what makes a personal story worth telling? Uh, Perhaps you have to make that choice between telling a true and powerful story or wanting to look good. And that means looking outward from your own personal experience towards the public space in which that personal experience will resonate like an echo chamber. So finally, challenge nine. Uh, will your personal revelation, your confession, if you like, will that result in any kind of public benefit or is it merely a kind of personal catharsis? When I started recording this story, sometimes I did just want to go sit on the couch in the living room of someone else's life. But it's hard to always be an onlooker. A few weeks ago, I had to go interview a lifeguard. He said, bring your bathing suit. When I got to the ocean, I told him I was afraid. He asked me what of, and I said, everything. <laughs> Just me and two pieces of mango-colored polyester against the vast sea. He told me to turn sideways so the waves would break over me more easily. And he said, do you want me to watch you? At first, I was too embarrassed to say yes, but I finally did. So he stood there, on the shore, and watched, and I went in. It was still terrifying. It was not fun. But since then, I've been swimming a lot. The day I went to see my aunts, I got knocked over by a wave. I'd been at the beach that morning. I was just about to get out when I saw a big wave coming. I remembered what the lifeguard said, and I was just too tired to be afraid anymore. So I thought, I'm just going to let this wave knock me down. I'm probably going to get some water up my nose, but I'll end up back on shore. And that's exactly what happened. The wave knocked me over. I got water up my nose, but it did bring me back to shore. It was scary. It felt like the ocean would swallow me up and sweep me away. But good luck fighting the ocean, gritting your teeth and trying to white-knuckle it through against something looming and larger than you can be exhausting. I'm not a soldier. I'm more like a butterfly with a broken antenna. And I am not okay. Okay. 
And now I've said it, which makes this the most truthful story I've ever told, which also means it's both the most horrible and wonderful one. And that's how we ended. And Ellen, if you cry, I'm going to cry, so you can't cry. (laughs) Um... So after the story aired on the BBC, we got a lot of responses on email, on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, even the Times of London weighed in, and they had nice things to say. And in case you don't know, Alan explained to me, it's like the New York Times, but for the whole country, so sort of a big deal. Um, And people, I heard from people who had had their hearts broken, people who were in the depths of sadness and misery. Uh, people who years later, after having their hearts broken, were still sad. People who years later um, were really happy. Um, but there was also another kind of message, like one I will never forget from the husband of a veterinarian who wrote to thank me because now he understood the grief his wife was dealing with when her patients died, cats and dogs. Um, the mother of a teenage son who had had his first heartbreak and was having a really hard time with it and was hospitalized wrote to thank me um, for letting her understand the depths of her son's grief. A high school drama class in London, or sorry, not in London, in England, wrote to tell me they were making the story into a play, which I really think is the ultimate accolade. (laughs) Um, All kinds of emails. And I I feel like people found their own space in the story. For me, the same fundamental rule applies uh, to this or any personal story as to any other documentary we we might be making as as feature makers. Is Is the total greater than the sum of the parts? Is the raw tape enhanced by the addition of music, by the addition of scenes, by the addition of secondary voices by the script because if it isn't if the total isn't greater than the sum of the parts we've got no right to be messing about with this stuff and there is another dimension to this of course which is uh, to ask yourself should I be telling a personal story Uh, for me in particular as a traditional news reporter this was really something to grapple with and there's a reason why uh, I chose to pitch it to Alan and the BBC um The United Kingdom is an ocean away. They have their own time zone. (laughs) Although we do have the internet. That's true. Um, Once you put something out there, you can't take it back. And there's no rush. Uh, So think about it. It's your story. It's not going anywhere. Um, And for context, I know this is something that maybe people don't want to hear. But when I started recording my audio diary, I did not set out to tell a story it wasn't until you know a year had passed when I started to think about it. Um, and then don't forget, you also have to pitch your story. So after all of this, you'll still have to figure out how to persuade someone else that it's worth listening to and telling, which is really what's at the heart of our presentation today. So we'll just recap those uh, nine challenges because we went to enormous trouble to bring them to you. Um, challenge number one, imagine yourself in a bar with friends or on the sofa drinking tea, if you're Sally, and uh, ask yourself honestly whether your story is worth sharing. What's in it for the listener? Challenge number two, is this story even a story? Does it have legs? 
Challenge three, does it have specificity? Does it have a kind of uniqueness of detail and, and proximity to a subject? Challenge four, is there a place for the listener? Challenge five, does it pass the me cast versus you cast, us, sorry, us cast test? Challenge six, does this story work as a solo effort or does it need additional characters? Challenge seven, do you have or need uh, a person who can reflect back to you how things actually are rather than how you imagine them to be and how you imagine you hear them? Challenge eight, with credit to Aunt Lucy, thank goodness for Aunt Lucy, am I trying to tell a true and powerful story or am I trying to look good? Challenge nine, will your personal revelation result in public benefit. Thank you for your patience. Hello, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with the Q&A from this session. You're listening to Chicago's Progressive Radio Adventures. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast podcast, Resound. Resound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right, we're back. Now, here's a Q&A from The Confessional. When is a personal story worth sharing? Hi. So, I think the thing for me, and I think this is a question that I want people to think about, is that, like, for me, having 
gone through this experience, like, with you, seen everything that's gone on, and then all the time that had passed and knowing how you'd come out the other side, all the work that happened. And so, like, when this piece aired, I knew everything that you worked on and kind of how great you were doing and how you moved on and all of these things, but yet at the same time, it was like all of this outpouring, very public outpouring on social media that it was like, oh, poor Sally. And I kept being like, no, not poor Sally. She's, like, doing great. And I just wanted to see if you could talk about what that experience was like um, to kind of have to, in a way, like, relive it and have, like, then how to defend and be like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not this, like, this is me then. I'm not this then. And then people kind of... Yeah, that's that's a great question. That was something I did not anticipate, and it was really, actually, it was kind of hard. Um, people, like we mentioned, I got a ton of emails, and, you know, you're having a great day, you're at work, or just, just a normal day, even an average day, maybe an even not-so-great day, but... Um, you know, and, and then you get an email from someone who's really deeply upset about their own personal experience, maybe, you know, maybe even suicidal, and, and they've written you like a mini novella, and, and that, that, can be, that can be really hard to grapple with. Um, and that was something I did not anticipate. So there was everything from that to people walking up to me and being like, wow, I'm so sorry to hear. Um, and so a lot of times if I... If I present this or talk about it, I'll say first, hey, everyone, I'm going to tell you a story, but first let's make an agreement. Like, pinky swear. Let's not be weird about this. This was a few years ago, and I'm actually okay now. Um, Yeah, so that was tough and unanticipated. Um, I was wondering about um, the tape because you did record it and didn't know that you were going to create a story with it, and how much time had passed between recording it and actually listening to it and what people may want to be prepared for. I the whole time I was listening, I imagine it must have been incredibly painful to revisit it. Um, maybe, maybe I have a cold, shriveled black heart. Um, that was not. That wasn't super. That was not the hardest. That was not the hardest part. Um, but time had. I don't know how much time had passed. A year or two. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that hard. But I, I also did it in little pieces. I didn't. I didn't sit down. I mean, does anyone here like super excited about sitting down to listen to eight hours of tape? I don't think we would want to listen to any eight hours of tape in one day. So just by virtue of, like, you know, I'd be brain dead if I did that. So I think I broke it up. Yeah. Kind of on the same uh, line of questioning, I'm wondering if you could both talk about how you thought about uh, whether or not enough time had had passed and what kind of assuaged your fear that maybe it was too vulnerable and too raw and how this story would have looked different if you had waited five years or ten years and how you weighed those things. Yeah, I... I was uncertain when I first heard from Sally her interest, uh, 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 when she first sort of suggested the possibility. But then by the time I'd heard that little sort of short compilation, the montage she put together, I I realized that she could deal with it. And if she could deal with it, I could deal with it. You know, it's not that hard for me. (laughs) Um, And then by the time we made the program, um, it was almost a question of kind of getting back into the mindset. Yeah, I think there has to be a sweet spot because it has to be enough time has passed that you that you're able to emotionally handle it, but there can't be too much time that's passed because then you're just going to be like, "Ugh, I don't even want to think about that anymore." Um, so you need to wait a little bit. So it was like a couple of years to give me the distance I needed to be able to handle it, 
and the perspective, but then not like five or six years for me, this is going to be everyone's decision. Cause then I'd be like, why would I want to talk about that? You know, I'm that, Whoa, that's so long ago. The, and the, there's also a sort of, um, a personal or ethical kind of consideration, less so in this story, but in other stories I've done where, um, I mean, I've, I've talked to the parents of, of children who've died, for example, and I've, I've felt sitting there on the sofa, do you have sofas? Couches? Yeah. Um, uh, talking to this man that it's like it's just weeks that's too close you know and I felt bad about that I don't forgive myself but I'll add one more thing which is I didn't even begin recording till maybe a month and a half had passed because I, I, I was in total I was literally in shock so it was a traumatic experience I didn't I don't even think I knew that at the time until someone told me like you've been traumatized like it's like a death someone just was disappeared out of your life like I came home and and he was just gone and his like his you know left comic books by the side of the bed and his clothes were in the closet and there was just this tiny like three line email and he was just poof gone so that that like you know my sister was like feeding me grapes in the backyard and like that took a little while to just sort of like you know just get back to functioning normally. So a little time had passed even before I started turning to my diary. That was the crutch I needed when I was like, okay, time to get back to work. Oh, crap. I don't, this, like, I think I'm going to cry some tears now. Luckily, I have a sound booth in my living room. So I'm going to go in there. I'm going to cry my tears into my recorder. I'm going to do that for 20 minutes. And then I'm going to come back up and man up. Come back out. Uh, hey. Um, I think I know what it is, but I feel like there wasn't like any attention given to it. So I wanted to ask, um, what is a me cast? And if a me cast is what I think it is, is there any way to sort of uh, work with a me cast, edit it so it can be an us cast? Yeah, well, a me cast uh, 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 is a term I stole from a very eminent figure in American radio and podcast uh, landscape, Judy Shapiro. She mentioned it in a in a provocation last year that there are an awful lot of, there are an awful lot of podcasts turning up which are just about me, um, and really I mean that's the the crux of what we've been trying to talk about is the is is how you take something which is about me and make it a shared experience. Um, so and I think essentially it the same rule applies as applies to virtually anything I've ever made. I think as a program maker that. If the program's only about what it says on the tin, then it's not really going to resonate with people. You need, it needs to be about something subterranean, subliminal, deeper. It has to be, the real story has to be somewhere else. And so the, the, the surface story is Sally gets dumped, but the real story is about loss. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was a bit more sensitive during the making of the program. <laughs> Sally gets dumped. All right, you guys, simmer down. Yeah. Um, just a great question. I think we asked uh, in the presentation is why should anyone else care? Like Alan said, why should anyone? Like your mom might be psyched and your grandma, but why should anyone else care? It's a little. It's a little harsh sounding, but it's a great starting place. So that was actually kind of my question. Um, I haven't heard the piece in its entirety, so maybe it would be obvious if I had. But maybe for those of us who haven't, um, when you were thinking about the challenges, what made you answer challenge number one, like is this story worth sharing, what's in it for the listener, in the affirmative in order to move forward with the making of this story? 
I think that was identifying that it wasn't actually about Sally. It's about uh, loss. It's about a universal experience. So I guess um, what would what would have made you what would have made the story feel like it had been just about Sally? Like what did the story specifically have that showed you that it wasn't? Because I think a lot of other personal stories, people have feelings, and if you think about oh, other people have had these feelings. Okay, that's what it's in it for them. So yeah. Uh, in, the, in this instance, it was, it was, there was at no time any suggestion the program was going to be about, well, uh, he did this to me, and, 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 and after I'd done that for him, and then it, it, the he said, she said, that wasn't part of it at all. There's no judgment about him. It's about an event, a trauma that happened, and then subsequently. Yeah, of course, we all, there are universal themes like love and other things. But, there, um, yeah, no, you, you there, take there, it. There's no... Um, you don't learn anything about my ex-husband. There's no, we were married for this many years, and um, he loves chocolate, and this is where we met. There, there's, no, there's none of that. There's, it, there's no detail about that at all. Um, so it's much more the process of going through a loss. And there's, there's no, I don't, you don't hear me like, and then, and then, like, I remember this text. So there's just enough to provide that contrast about when I met him. He seemed nice. We were happy. And now he's gone. Um, so you get that sense of loss. And then it's really about grief and loss. There, it's not a, there's no specific characters. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. I think this follows on to both of those questions. But I was wondering um, when you think about the public benefit, um, that sort of last element, um, at what point do you think about that before you send it out to broadcast? Yeah, it's a very broad... Defi- how do you define public benefit? You know, Because it sounded like you have some great... Yeah. It, had a, it had some great benefits. I mentioned in the... In the, in the uh, I used the phrase audience need. Um, I, don't really, I don't know that the audience really needs any of anything that we do, does it? <laughs> Frankly. But it's a kind of BBC concept that they like to apply to things. Um, uh, for me, the, part of the audience... I mean, this is a slightly kind of pragmatic part of the audience benefit was hearing a different kind of storytelling because this isn't typical to the BBC um, and I also knew I was confident that there was no damage being done to anyone I mean Adnan aside um, we did what we could by him we did our best and he knew exactly um, and he could have chosen to respond in different ways but actually I, I didn't feel that Sally was being damaged and, and that I, I, actually we were vindicated by the response weren't we? I mean, the response, compared to most things, that, and we do a lot for the BBC, the response was kind of overwhelming. I guess part of it is like, did you plan for anything specific? Like, plan for any, um, you know, you, you had people making plays out of the story, did you plan in any way for any kind of reaction from it? No, I mean, there, there, is, there, there, there is a mechanism for some BBC broadcasts where you can refer people to um, helplines and, uh, you know, that, that, we, we didn't even do that, I don't think. But, cause, I told cause my it's mom not, that yeah. it was... Or maybe I didn't even tell my mom. I, I, don't, I, I, told, I think I told my sister, like, a few months later, I was like, hey, did you listen? I did a story. You're in it. Um, as many outlets like to keep pitches short, could you talk a little bit more about pitching a personal story? Could we talk about that? Like the process of pitching a personal, in, you know, like how do you write a good pitch as for a personal story? 
Yeah, well, uh, certainly in terms of the BBC, I mean, uh, one in ten ideas will get spiked. I mean, one in ten ideas that's offered, and there's probably twice that number which aren't. There's a sort of filtration system. So it has to stand out, it has to be distinctive. And I think because we had some, some of the material, we were able to include some lines that sort of cut through, just sort of suggesting the territory that we were going to get into and the kind of the depth of, of feeling. Um, but my, my advice with any pitching is um, if you have to explain anything, you're in trouble. You know, if you, you, it needs to be self-explanatory. And if you can express it in, in the length of time that... Um, you know, a, a very busy commissioning editor, certainly in my world, is, is a bit like a CV. He's going to look at this for uh, prob probably about that long. You know? And so if you can't cut through with a, a kind of killer opener and then a very clear explanation of not just the subject, but what the pro, what the, sorry, I mustn't say program, what the documentary is. Um, if you, um, one thing I know, that it, this is sticking out my head, but I feel like there were, quote, there were quotes, like you mentioned, and maybe those were in bold. And I feel like maybe some of the language in the pitch is on, if you go to the BBC website now, I feel like some of the description is similar. Maybe not. Yeah, possibly. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. It's been a couple years. But, um, yeah, but there, there, were, there were quotes. It has to be distinctive. for Sally, I guess, is what made you want to do that story? Like, I think for me, if I was going through something similar, I'd think like, oh, like, this is, this is, this sucks, this is my problem, but I can't expect anybody else to care, you know? Like, I, I just think there's so many, like, dismissive voices, especially in a creative endeavor, especially in a highly personal creative endeavor. Like, uh, yeah, I guess just, why did you want to do that story? Sure, um, that's a good question. So I think uh, it was just natural for me. It's something we explain in the story um, and maybe in a clip we played. It's because I'm a reporter and I've been a reporter for, most of my, for much of my adult life. It's just a natural, it feels comforting to me and to pick up um, a microphone the same way a photographer might pick up a camera. It was a way for me to distance myself and process it. Um, and so like Aunt Lucy says, she finds comfort, uh, structure, meaning, purpose. And it, it just... It, it, it helps to, to distance yourself, and yet it, it's bigger than you. And I, you know, I'm having trouble even finding the words, but it was, it was just a comfortable, familiar process that I was used to using to make sense of the world. And this was something bigger and more mystifying and confusing than anything. So I think I attacked it in the most familiar and comforting way that I knew. And I don't know if you caught it in the clip, but I grew up in a family of sort of artsy people with a with documentary makers around me, so it felt very normal for me to turn on PBS as a little girl and be like, oh, there's grandma, you know? So I felt more comfortable sharing my story with the entire United Kingdom than I did in talking to the, you know, uh, people around me. Like, there's a reason I have not chosen to broadcast this in the United States. Um, I was curious about the point about... Um checking whether it's how you imagined it or how it actually happened and aside from getting a response I was really curious about it it's really interesting that you had the audio diary and you could go back and remember that that's how you felt but I don't know I guess I'm curious how you fact check feelings in terms of if you don't have audio that's a great maybe question. you thought you were doing better at some points or I, I, that's a great question and it uh, think we just come we just keep coming back to Aunt Lucy Thanks, Aunt Lucy. Um, it, it, for me, that was um, 
it was this realization, like, you know, just think about if you have a friend who's sad and something bad has happened to them and they're, they, you, you walk up to them and you're like, how are you doing with this kind of hopeful note in your voice? There's this enormous expectation and subsequent pressure that everyone puts on you to be like, you really, people want to hear you be like, I'm great. And like, the truth was, I was not great. Like, I was not great. What happened really sucked, and I'm really still kind of screwed up from that. But as I should be, because I'd be like a weird android robot person if I was totally fine. And so Aunt Lucy was the one who was like, what's wrong with being sad? What's, what's wrong with being weak? What's wrong with being vulnerable? So for me, that was the fact-checking, because I was kind of, like, you, if you listen to the piece, you'll hear me saying throughout it, I think I'm doing great, and then, like, bursting into tears. <laughs> and then Lucy was like, hey, now, like that's okay. And I was like, oh, so that was the emotional fact-checking. I work with a lot of psychologists and they talk a lot about stories and dealing with trauma and trying to develop a narrative in order to weave your life story back together. And so I wonder how that helped you, how the process of telling this story helped you deal with your trauma. And then subsequently, how you approach stories and your reporting differently or how it's maybe affected your reporting style subsequently. Like I'm thinking that you might have a a sense that you can help people process their trauma through the stories that they're telling you, but that might not necessarily serve you as a reporter. Yeah, I don't think it comes to play a lot in my day-to-day work, you know, reporting a story in like a new startup or something like, cause that's the kind of storytelling I do. So, um, I, maybe if I was dealing with a different kind of story, I could see it being helpful. Um, and in terms of helping me process it, I think it was sort of what I addressed. Like it was a familiar comforting process. So I found that really, really helpful. This should be pretty quick, but what do you think you gained from this being one 30 minute broadcast rather than something that's serialized? Or if you had, like, drug it out over a season, what did you gain from it being? That sounds so horrible to me. Like, this is, like, this is my life. Like, this is my life, right? I, I, wow, I would not, I could not handle that. Like, kind of what Anne's question was about the, the reaction. Like, anytime this has gone out there into the world... I, I re- like little missiles like you know when you remember the Atari game maybe not because you're young but like there's this Atari game and it's Space Invaders and there's like a little a little guy at the bottom going doo, 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 and there are all these like um, bad guys coming at you and you have to shoot them and so the emails are both wonderful but they're also it's kind of like that and I could not like wow no yeah, <laughs> no. yeah. Season, yeah no. season two yeah. no the uh-huh. new boyfriend this is yeah <laughs> Hi. Uh, do you think that, like, what if you didn't have, what if, what, what would you, what if you didn't have that audio diary, would you have done this? No, I don't think so, no. What would you suggest to people who didn't have an audio diary during their said personal story? I don't, that's, you know, everyone's so different, I just, I don't know. That's a, that is a, that is a great question and a big question. I'm not sure. I turned to what was comforting for me. Maybe the question for Alan is what would, what would we have done if I'd pitched a story without any tape? Fiction? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess what, I mean, I, I guess I don't have any of that to refer back to. So it's like, how do I justify, it's just a, it's a harder question to answer, I feel like. Yeah, when I was, it's I, like, you don't have tape. I was, but I know I have a story. Yeah. 
I was at the In the Dark session earlier, and they make a big play of how you know good tape can get in the way of an investigation, and that was like, yeah, uh, yeah, okay, do a print piece, to my mind, you know? It, maybe it's not radio. Um, so, you know, tape. I, I don't know. Yeah, he's smart. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, there are a lot of personal stories that, that lean on the, the writing, you know? And maybe there's ways that the writing is the core of the piece, and then there's elements of sound and music and, and other things. And maybe oh, sure. it's not a 27-minute documentary, but I mean, I've done ones that were like five minutes, and I've worked on, you know, mostly it's me and some other stuff. You know, I know, and it's very good. Well, thank you. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, it just the form will fit the story. You know, yeah. like that's not the concern. Sally has one model, but there are many different models, and you can find them all over the place. You know, just find the one that works for you and that inspires you, and then. Yeah, it's you know, personal. It's personal. So for me, yeah. like like we talked about, I could not have gone back and created these. I just wasn't capable of doing that. Um, but like Julia Barton um, just pointed out, yeah, we have the moth, we have this American life, we have the heart. There's so many models. Um, but I think we were talking about a very specific context, which was a piece for Radio 4 on the BBC, which is a very specific audience. And so just a reminder that that's the context that we're talking about. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm working on a piece that I thought was about me, but now that I'm working on it, it's, it's about my uncle, but now I realize it's actually about my mom. So I'm wondering, uh, has that ever happened to you where, it, I don't know if it gets stickier when it's about a family member, and for lack of a better term, how do you not pimp out your family? Like, how do you, like, it's easy when it's just about me, but... The story's changed a lot, so I'm just wondering if there's any difference you'd say with family members or anything like that. This is for me. Okay. Um, well, I, I probably wouldn't. I, I probably wouldn't go there. I recognise the idea that the program turns out to be not the program you started to make. I mean, that's great. I mean, in a way, if the program is the one that you think of in the first instance and hasn't become something else, that's a little disappointing. Um, I've always been a little cautious about plundering family for, for material for stories because you're, you're immediately compromised. You're not, you need that independence of perspective and how you retain that, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, and just, just to add, I don't know if you caught it in the clip, but I grew up in a family of documentary makers, so it's a little unusual. Like Aunt Lucy, who I talked to, like I grew up watching her make documentary films, so she was, it was just seemed like totally normal that like you'd turn on the TV and there was, you know, grandma, like that was a thing in my house. So I feel like for other people, their families might be a little more cautious or not, but, um, you know, treat them like you would any other source to the ability that you can, but then you're going to need an editor because you don't, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to treat them the same way you would treat someone else. And then the other sort of general observation, which applies to everything we do, is um, <clears throat> we, we kind of spend a lot of time worrying about what we're trying to get from an interview with somebody. And I think we'd, we'd be really much better placed spending that time trying to think ourselves into their shoes. What, what are they? What's this person I'm asking questions of expecting from this exchange, from this interaction? Uh, 
Um, I'm thinking about a story um, where I would do, or my experience would be the entry point into a larger conversation about something that happened in the community where I lived when I was a kid. So at that point, it's like, it's my personal story, but then I'm also the investigator. Do you feel like that's rife with uh, problems of objectivity? <laughs> Did that make sense? What, so you're, you're both in it and you're the investigator. Right, right. So I'm interviewing other people who are also involved in this thing that happened. I have thoughts. Good. There's, I think there's a big continuum here. That, that This is a large scale, black, white, all these shades of gray in between. So I think this really depends on what the context is. Like I'm at, at my heart, I'm a journalist. I tell news stories. And so in a news story, I would immediately say, that's not okay, so sorry, bye. <laughs> so it really depends on what the context is because right away it's going to color your approach to the story. You're gonna, we're going to know right away in the audience that you have a side, you have a bias, you have a stake. Um, but that, that context is I'm coming from a place of news. It's going to be different for, for another type of, another form. Yeah, and you have to be honest about your part in it. Are you invested in it more than just as someone telling a story, a random you know, a disconnected story? And I think another great question, which it's, we, we probably made one of our challenges, is does your being in the story add to it in some way? Is there a need for you to be in the story? Uh, can you find another character who would serve that purpose so the audience doesn't question your bias or point of view? There's a couple of questions down here as well. Yeah. This, this is such a non-philosophical question, but um, in terms of trucking a recorder around with you in your life... Um, how do you have it not get in the way of authentic interactions? And, you know, how do you sit and have an authentic interaction at a bar with a recorder in front of you and also get decent sound? I mean, I don't, first of all, I don't think of a microphone as um, obtrusive or bothersome. It's just like a thing. And then I don't, I don't want to get off mic right now, but, you know, you just kind of like bop, bop it around and you, you do what you need to do she with it. She did as well. That was a lot of bumping around. <laughs> um, a lot. I mean, the tape, the diary tape of me was just me crying at home in my sound booth. And a lot of it, honestly, I recorded on my phone because, again, I never was, I never set out to make a documentary. So the tape you hear of me and Stacy, I recorded on my phone. However, I can speak from my day job as a news reporter. I use a shotgun. I love my shotgun mic. It's bigger than the mic I'm holding. And I simply, I don't find it obtrusive. I think if you choose to see it as obtrusive, it is going to, you are going to color it that way. Yeah, I use um, a little handheld Zoom, you know, inbuilt mics. Very cheap and easy, but very good sound. And, and actually, I, I think we need to, we, we shouldn't think of it as, um, as an obtrusive. obtrusive. It, I think it, uh, the microphone allows you to puncture the personal space of the person you're talking to. I mean, it allows you to get that much closer. And I sometimes do this demonstration where I get very close to somebody with a microphone, and then I just sort of take the microphone away. And it's very unsettling to be that close. The, the microphone allows you to get almost arm round the shoulders close to people. And that's okay, you know. One, just oh, one, pra- one quick practical thing. I tell people I'm going to get uncomfortably close, so I say, hey, I'm going to get uncomfortably close now. And then if I still feel that they're uh, nervous, I'll take my mic. I'm not going to take it away from my mouth now because you won't be able to hear what I say, but it has a wind foam cover on it. And I'll say, see, it's squishy, just like a teddy bear. And then I'll actually bop them with the mic, depending on who they are. 
Or sometimes right. I'll ask them to, you know, touch it. You know, it really, I'm, I'm being jokey with you guys. I'm not going to do that in all situations, but that can, that can help to, right. to relieve some of the discomfort, if there is any. But I don't assume there is. You're assuming there is. Let's yeah. take the question down here. Um, thank you both so much for that uh, presentation. It was really interesting. I just want to know, you, we talked, um, you spoke, we played the audio, rather, of you going up in the elevator, and it seemed like it wasn't, that long after you received the email. And I'm wondering at what point you decided, or perhaps you didn't even have a conscious thought, uh, to start recording yourself. And I know you didn't know that it was going to be um, something bigger later on, but at what point did you think, I'm going to start recording this? And then perhaps, Alan, perhaps you've had other um, personal stories. At what point did they decide to start recording sort of really personal moments? Um, to be totally honest, I, I couldn't tell you exactly. I'm going to guess it was traumatic. I didn't, I didn't, I've come to accept like, oh, this was a traumatic thing that happened. This wasn't just like a really bad thing. This was a traumatic thing. So the first few weeks were just a horrible blur. And, um, but it, you know, my editor called and I was like sitting in my mom's backyard and he's like, Sally, we need to put you on a story about X, Y, and Z. And I was like, John, my husband left. And he said, where did he go? And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, um, so there were points where I needed to just get on with my day. So I'm going to guess around six weeks in or something, you know, it was like I would sit down at my desk and then I'd be like, oh God, I think I'm going to cry now. So I, I, I honestly don't remember. It's so comfortable. I find... I. <laughs> like keep taking it off. I find this such a comfortable thing. It, I just turned to it as a way to function. And I went and I was like, I have to do something. Maybe someone had suggested I write in a diary. I honestly don't remember. But it, I turned to it because I did not know what else to do. So maybe six weeks in and then I would go cry for half an hour. And, and anytime something was difficult, I would record into my little phone diary. I'm the wrong person to ask about personal stories. I, I, I mean, you, well, not, <laughs> not my own, but but even um, but just sort of generally, if I find if I find my questions are left in the program, I, I I see that as a mark of failure, usually. Although then there are instances when you you need to be in because you're the person who's allowing people to care because it's your passion that allows people. I don't know. Yeah, oh, it depends. It's so difficult. I mean, I've done I've done programs with with the parents of dead children, too close to it happening, and I felt uncomfortable. You know. I think you just have to be humane. So, yeah, there's a few other hands. I don't know. Yeah. I know, but, uh, yeah, there's a woman there. <clears throat> no, you go. Sorry, okay. sorry. <laughs> um, this is really fascinating to me because my other job is as a psychotherapist. And so this idea of self-disclosure is a huge debate in that community as well. And when is it useful? And how do you do it? And how do you talk about it with your clients? How much do you want them to know about you? Um, but on my podcast, I'm pretty open about myself, but I notice that I get in this place where I don't want to be that person who's just talking about herself all the time. And so then I might end up being kind of vague when I mention a personal thing like, oh, yeah, I've totally experienced that too, or something just kind of a vague aside. And what I'm gathering from this is maybe if I'm going to share something personal, I should go all the way. Like, I shouldn't just give some kind of vague aside but actually flesh it out as a story if it is even worth sharing I don't I don't know what either of you think about that should I just not do it or do it all the way or is there an in-between that's also okay yeah the, the, the I think the therapist analogy is really interesting isn't it because you, you're doing you, you're sort of trying to create a space and contain a space 
in which people can be genuine and open and fully themselves, but actually it's, it's contrived and it's, and it's constructed. And we do the same in an in interview situation. And if you, and if you are both the... Uh, it goes back to the earlier question. If you're both the, the interrogator and, and you've got a stake in the story, then there is a kind of conflict. There's a, there's a tension that you have to kind of negotiate. Anytime you mention yourself, I think of the microphone or recorder like a camera. Anytime you mention yourself, you're pointing the camera at, at you and therefore away from something else. So is there a reason for doing that? Yeah. Well, this, this is related to that in that I think there's, there's probably a lot of people here who are doing their own podcasts. And, and for example, I, there are a lot of podcasts that I like because the, per, the, the host, the person talking, is really good at telling stories about themselves. And you feel, you know, you kind of feel, you get to make a, <clears throat> a feeling of a connection with them. <clears throat> So I think I wonder if there's people here who want to be that, who want to make a connection with the listeners by telling their own personal stories, <clears throat> but they feel uncomfortable about telling their own personal stories. So they're actually, they kind of feel a need to do it, but are, but are also feel unwilling to do it. Should you then just forget it? Is that, or should you find a way to do it? Is it worth finding a way to do it? <clears throat> More because you want a you want a connection with your listeners rather than the fact that you have a you have to have the story absolutely, or is is just the fact that you want you want to connect with the listeners is that is that enough or is that just a road to hell? Do you understand? Do you have to want to tell your story to do yeah, it? Yeah, I suspect yeah. you do. Yeah, yeah, and um, or at least maybe have a good editor. Yeah, who? Um, I was just thinking when you were talking, Bob, that um, uh, a thought that's now evaporated into the ether. I think it's been sucked into the air conditioning sound up there. So, um, yeah, yeah, that connection, that desire to connect, it's really interesting. I mean, I was I was really nervous about this production. I haven't really told Sally quite the extent of my nervousness about this going out on the BBC and how it might impinge upon any future possibilities of work for the BBC because it was so different and it's very kind of raw but actually, I mean we were vindicated by the reaction which was astonishing much, much, much more effusive um, response from listeners than, 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 we, than we ever get for things Thanks you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, the more more questions. So. Okay, just one minute. We'll come to you next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have a question. Um, something that just didn't sit a little bit well with me, um, as a, like from my identity when I'm producing stories from a personal experience, I'm a Latin American, and I don't think about making a story for someone like you, who's like a white male. Um, and so I want to know when you're producing these stories, how cognizant of you are you of any biases you might have because something might not relate to you, but it might relate to someone else from another audience uh, versus like, oh, logistically, it doesn't make sense for the audience. Yeah, totally. I'm absolutely aware of it. Um, uh, I hope to be. I'm probably not as aware of it as I should be. Uh, but in this instance, I was like I was thinking of myself as a, a BBC or a British listener, uh, but I was also trying to get into Sally's head. But in other circumstances, other situations, I mean, we've made programmes that that I haven't felt I can go and do interviews for, and it would be much better if a you know, person of colour or somebody else is actually in that role. So um, I'm very conscious of the impact I have. But I'm also conscious of, of how, if you, if you can do this job quite well... 
you're like a Zelig figure. You can become, you're kind of chameleon-ish. You can be, I, I, I'm not always six foot, three and a half, white, British, southern, English, middle-aged, middle-class person. Sometimes I can be um, much shorter and fatter or, um, you know, you can, you can become a blank slate um, if, if, if you kind of know, if you've got that sort of in, intuition about how you talk, deal with people and talk with people. But there are some specific things where I don't understand some of the language that's being used. I don't understand the, the emphases or the, uh, the nuances, for sure. So I have, like, just some production questions I'm next, that, that are... I'm just curious about when I heard the story, and, and I don't remember if I, I, if, what the resolution was. Um, one, I'm curious about uh, that tape that you included of Anon, um, sort of, kind of, why did you have that? And if you didn't have that, what would you have done? Um, would, you have, would you have felt like you could tell that story without that piece of tape? Uh, and then the other piece of it, just you know, purely the, the the production is when you talk about having you know hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, you're like it's like my logging nightmare that I feel like you're describing, and I'm wondering how you, you know, what you did to tackle that, and did you you know what tools you used to sort of start keeping all of that organized. I think I can address the first and third, and then okay. So I had that tape because he was my husband, and we were married. <laughs> and so the same way people have photos of each other, and you know, stuff, remnants, flotsam and jetsam of people in their lives. I had you know little. I'd gotten a new phone or something, and when Alan suggested it, I'd also purged everything. So I went. And I remembered I had this old box in my office that I think I had a bunch of old iPhones in with like cracked screens and stuff. Because I I literally had to really search. I was like, oh god, I feel like I was looking for an old voicemail message that just happened to be on an old phone, and I like found an old charger because my office is kind of messy and plugged it in. So I had it because we were married and it was on some old stuff. And um, with would we have made the program without? Uh, Without it, I don't know. What would you have suggested? Yeah, that might have thrown in a problem I mean, editorially. I think, I think we needed some sense. We would have to have found an alternative way of conveying what had been lost. Yeah. It, I mean, Adnan's absence is, is, uh, is, is the big kind of elephant in the room. Yeah. And then, but, then, but then it isn't about him. It's not about the specifics. It's about something else. Yeah. And then the third part, honestly, the logging, I just, as the British say, I just got on with it. It just, there's yeah. just, in the Pro Tools, I just had on my top track, it was like eight hours of tape, so I just listened to that. You yeah, know, you listen, was, and you choose the best bits, and you put them in the right order. It's not what hard. What he said. What he said. Anyway, I mean, you have, to, you have to endure the pain of that experience of going through. Are you ready for the question? Yes? I'm over here. I have it still. Oh, Can I go for it? Okay, so, um, Sally, um, I'm, apologies. I haven't heard it yet, but the email that he sent, um, the original email, did you read it in the piece? Uh, and if so, why? And if not, why not? Uh, you mean the one he sent where he said he was leaving? Yes, that one. Um, I think we included a summary. I think we said something like, it's short. He said he was leaving and said he was never coming back again. And um, I don't know that you know that seemed to kind of it, something like that. It was such a short email, and you know when you write, you have to write for your own voice. So I think we just 
summarized. And also we had to cut things and make things fit. It, it just, yeah, it seemed like a clear way to explain it. So there was no ethical decision not to read his words that he never expected to be broadcast. Well, he was contacted. Right. And, but, yeah. I mean, when he wrote them, he would never have expected them to end up in the story. He, you but know, you still could have made that I think that, call. that we could have had that discussion with him. Um, and he chose not to enter into that discussion. He's an adult. That's his choice. Um, I wonder if each of you has advice for someone who's thinking about doing a personal story. I mean, obviously, one of the beautiful things about your piece is that it was recorded raw and you were not planning on a story. But if you are, are there things people should be thinking about, the kinds of material an editor might want to have, for example, things you wished you had had from that period that Sally maybe didn't record, um, and any advice for keeping it real when you have that like reporter voice in your head? Uh, the real, the real thing you want is um, to um, to try and capture things unfolding in real time as they're happening without knowing quite where they're going. That's absolutely what you want, rather than something that's sort of considered and rehearsed and a little bit lame. Um, but of course, that's the hardest thing to get. And the use of props or the use of being in a situation or the use of you know I mean you know the classic thing of just being being in a being in a car not looking at anyone else and just sort of talking as you would to your adolescent child about sex education you know that sort of thing Um, I do remember uh, there was a point when Al you know the piece was just me and then the way Alan explained it to me was like we need other voices and I was like, oh, other voices. <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to go, I'll go get those other voices. Um, and then I think Joe, I see Joe Richmond here. Um, hi, Joe. Uh, who produces a wonderful series called or, uh, Radio Diaries, um, which is probably the ultimate example of, of beautifully produced radio diaries where we have access to these details of people's lives. And, you know, um, right? You give recorders to people and they record diaries um so i think listening to some radio diaries would be great it's it's that same not wanting to have contrived moments but just taking the recorder with you everywhere which again i had not planned to do it was just something i happened to do like it's like oh now i have to shred our like domestic partnership files and like oh here is the menu from our wedding and i'm going to shred all these and i'm going to record it so i just recorded everything which was great, and then I ended up with eight hours of tape to go through, which wasn't so fun, but that's what, kind of what you need. Talk to Joe Richmond. So I work on a podcast, and I've had the opportunity to produce a lot of personal stories, and actually the, trouble, the problem that I'm having with that is I find myself seeking, like, if something shitty happens to me, I'm like, oh, maybe I can turn it into a story. And it feels kind of perverse. Or if something shitty is happening to someone close to me, um, it reminds me of uh, David Sedaris' chapter in one of his books where he was telling his sister he's going to write about uh, an encounter that they had, even though she didn't want them to, want him to. Anyway, I just wonder, like, at what point do you turn that instinct off or do you not turn that instinct off? Because it, it just feels kind of icky. It feels like perverse to always be in producer mode of, oh, how can I turn this into a story when sometimes you just need to be a person living life? 
yeah, my instinct is always not to turn it into a story, <laughs> to go and do something else. <laughs> That's my instinct. Um, Ah, but that's why you need the detachment, you know, in a way, because I could push Sally towards certain things, which she might not have wanted to do herself. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, why would I not do that story? Well. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to do anything prurient. I don't want to do anything that's, that's pornographic or invasive. I mean, it has to have. I mean, this, this, this gets close, but, but it's about something else. It's about something universal. It's not about what it says on the top line. It's about that much deeper um, subterranean kind of experience. Yeah, you don't really, in our story, we don't, you don't know anything about our relationship. You don't know about our, like I played the story for my news editor and she wrote back and she said, how long were you married? And I was like, oh, that's an interesting question. You know, as a first response. But, like, it's, you don't hear any of these details. You don't know what we might have discussed. You don't know how we met or when we had kids or what we argued about or any of that. It's not about any of that. It's about an experience. Yeah. turn off those Sorry. instincts so why immediately you said I wouldn't follow through with those instincts like of those personal stories that she um, sees around her like she's you know the producer side of her wants to do them and then you said you would turn that instinct off so I just wanted to know why you would turn that instinct off because uh, I'm British <laughs> and, I would, and I would say keep it on but test it out right like and, and you know the, the things we're talking about here are, really need to be much more nuanced and detailed like these are such big questions and big ideas but you know like I did a, I did a little test I was like wow what happens if I make an eight and a half minute montage and play it in a room with you know 40 people and so you, you can like huh like my mom is getting evicted should I tell a story about that is that like a good idea you know hey mom you're outside in your nightgown with your stuff on, you know like like is that such a great thing you know <laughs> like you have to take it on a case by case basis We've actually exhausted our time, haven't we? But um, who's in charge here? Is there an adult in the room? <laughs> Are there any other questions? Or should we? Yeah, right here, right here. Right. Sort of a big question, which is, I was wondering if you could talk about your process of working together, how long it took you to make it, how you worked on structuring it and building the piece. I know, what an ender. We had eight and a half minutes, and then we pitched the BBC, which took like a year. <laughs> yeah, they have a long, it's a long process. Um, and then Alan or Ellie, uh, the producer at Felling Tree, said, Great, so we're gonna write a half an hour version now. So maybe I tried to do that. Yeah, and um, we said, Great, that's really good. Can you make it better? And then, um, and then have you thought about making it even better? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. We, it's step by step. Actually, this one because it's transatlantic as well. So it was, it was. It's not as if Sally could sort of pop in and we could sit there and have a concentrated sort of burst of listening. It was, it was all Skype and 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 phone calls. Yeah, I think it was a loose process, and I would sort of write a version, and it, if the parts of it that were right, they would say, "Hey, that sounds good," and in a Google Doc, and the parts of it that were not, they'd say, "Hey, you should maybe cut that." And then it came time, and we're like, "Now it's time to have some music." 
Yeah. And then I think we talked about the music. But it took, like, did we do it a year, eight months? or? Yeah, about that. Yeah. Can you just bear more soul? That was about my only question. So one very, very last question. Yeah. Hi. I wanted to ask if, because I think something that holds a lot of people back is fear about sharing something personal. Was there any fallout? Well, um, from at, who? What kind? So from your family, from your ex-husband's family, from your workplace, from strangers? Um, no, there was no fallout. And, and like I mentioned, I, I have this family, uh, I grew up in sort of an artsy-fartsy family, so they were just like, oh yeah, of course, Sally, of course you would make a documentary when your husband, like, what else would you do? Like, of course you would. Um, so that's that's very natural in my family. Um, Adnan's family, I never had, I'd never heard from them again. They're in, a, they're in Canada. Um, and I chose not to pitch the story there out of respect. I thought that would be disrespectful. Um, and I got, I did get one mean tweet, um, which was just sort of like, why would you play this on the radio? But it, besides that, it was sort of an, a, quite a bit of very nice feedback. That was the hardest part, honestly, because this, this, it's been years now, a few years now. And um, so, you know, you're sort of like out there living your life and you're not really thinking about this kind of not so nice thing that's happened. And then someone would send me like an email novel telling them how distraught they were. And then that was, that was kind of rough. That was pretty rough because they'd be really, really upset. Um, and then I would feel sad. And, and I'm not a therapist or I'm not set up to help those people. And I'd be like, oh, God, um, you know, and I, yeah, so that, that was the really hard, the hardest part for me is when I would get these emails out of the blue and I would feel really sad. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Hey there. Thanks for listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back next week with another session from the 2017 Third Coast Conference. But in the meantime, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org or download our podcast, ReSound, for the greatest audio stories from around the world. We'll see you next time and happy listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.